Welcome to About Scripture, a podcast designed to take the listener deeper into Scripture and biblical thought. I'm Ed Gallagher, Professor of Christian Scripture at Heritage Christian University. I hope to cover a variety of topics with you about Scripture. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Heritage Christian University, where we help students to thrive in ministry. To find out more, go to hcu.edu. We're also partnering with the Ministry League Network. They have free resources to help the local church all over the world. Download the app in the iOS or Play Store, or check out the website at ministryleague.com. And now, welcome to the podcast. All right, let's talk about the bad guys. So far, we have been talking about angels that we might more or less describe as good guys. And it's time to start talking about the bad guys. Actually, we're not going to quite get to the, what we would probably call bad guys yet. Do you remember the scene? I hope you've seen the movie. Um, Indiana Jones, the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you remember the scene where the Nazis' faces get melted. What melts their faces? Well, they, they open up the Ark of the Covenant and they, they look in there and they're not supposed to do that. And, well, these ghost-like creatures start flying around all over the place and start melting their faces. What are these ghost-like beings? What are we, if we are theologians of the Indiana Jones universe, what are, how are we interpreting these ghost-like creatures? They, they, they're coming out of the Ark of the Covenant. They must be like God's agents to protect the holiness of the Ark or something like that. They go around melting Nazis' faces, which we would probably say that's a good thing to do. You, if there are Nazis, you need to melt their faces. But, uh, but these are harmful spirits doing harm to people who need harm done to them, I suppose we would say. The Bible has stories like this. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, Now the spirit of Yahweh had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from Yahweh began to torment him. Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. I, Yahweh, do all these things. And then Amos 3, verse 6, this is the KJV. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Now, maybe evil isn't the right word. Let's call this presentation God's agents of evil. Maybe, maybe evil isn't actually the right word, uh, either in, in any of these verses that I've just read, First 
Samuel 16, verse 14, the evil spirit sent from God. Maybe it's not really an evil spirit. Evil usually implies something immoral, something like wickedness. It seems unlikely that Scripture is trying to attribute to our God actions that are morally wicked. Maybe a better translation would be bad. Does that help? Or even unpleasant. In which case, we could call this God's agents of unpleasantness. To call this spirit that torments Saul an unpleasant spirit makes some sense, and it relieves some of the tension of attributing such a spirit to God. But then again, to refer to killing babies as unpleasant seems a gross understatement. Such an action seems evil. And we all remember that scripture sometimes attributes to our God such actions, as in the 10th plague. We might still not want to call it evil if God is doing it, but how about this? We can think of this presentation as treating God's agents of what might seem to us as evil or at the very least unpleasant. The passages we will be covering here usually make us uncomfortable and they force us to struggle with questions about the nature of our God. We don't like to think about God telling lies or sending an angel to kill kids. Let's look at the examples and then we'll try to figure out what's going on. We've seen in previous times that God has all kinds of agents at his disposal, angels that he puts in charge of various tasks. Scripture, especially the Old Testament, but not only the Old Testament, reveals that God also has agents in charge of doing things we don't like. It may be that God it may be that God will assign a specific angel the task of doing something kind and helpful one time and another time assign that same angel a less kind project. May, in other words, maybe the same angel gets to sometimes do good things and sometimes do bad things. But the way that God's agent, agents are named in scripture, like the destroyer, the spirit of falsehood, might suggest that there are certain angels or spirits that always get the dirty work assignments. That every time God wants to accomplish something negative, he calls on these particular agents. As a preview of our discussion, let's just notice that plenty of times in the Bible, God does things that we would call negative, like destroying people. Sometimes God does such things directly, without apparently using agents. Sodom and Gomorrah is an example where Genesis 19 verse 24 says, then out of the sky, Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from Yahweh. Or remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They simply dropped dead, apparently by direct action of God. That's Acts chapter five. So God sometimes just does it himself, it seems like. But sometimes God uses agents. Sometimes he uses human agents, whether the human realizes the fact or not. Second Kings 17, 
justifies the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians because Israel had turned away from God. And therefore, verse 18 says, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence. God is responsible, but he used the Assyrians to accomplish his will of punishing Israel. And sometimes God uses celestial beings to perform these tasks. Now, Hebrews 1.14 describes angels as, quote, ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. The passages we will discuss would perhaps compel us to offer some nuance to that description. Maybe we would want to say that this is a good description for how God uses angels on behalf of his children, but he can also use them in other ways in, or in regard to people who have rejected them. Or perhaps we would want to say that the description in Hebrews applies to most but not all angels, even though the word all is actually used in the text. Or maybe we would want to say that it depends on the meaning of the word serve, since God can use bad situations to bring about his purposes for our good. At any rate, the Bible shows that God sometimes uses angels or spirits to do things that don't seem beneficial to humans. On the other hand, the humans that suffer from these actions are not the kind that the writer of Hebrews would describe as those who are going to inherit salvation. So let's look at the passages. First up is the destroyer in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is the Passover chapter. The Israelites are still enslaved to the Egyptians, but nine of the ten plagues have already passed, so escape is nigh after one last plague. The final plague will involve the death of the firstborn children of the Egyptians. The Israelites themselves will not suffer this tragedy of the death of the firstborn because they'll slaughter a lamb and slather some of its blood on their doorposts. And now verse 23 of Exodus chapter 12, when Yahweh passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Wait, what's this? Who's the destroyer? Is this some evil being going around killing kids? Well, killing kids, yes. But this spiritual being is under the authority of God, acting as God's agent. We know that because it's God's plan to strike down all the firstborn of the Egyptians. That's been a part of the plan all along since God first called Moses, Exodus 4 verse 23. And just a few verses later in Exodus 12, when the firstborn actually die, it's God that gets the credit. This is verse 29. Now at midnight, Yahweh struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. But judging from the earlier verse, verse 23, God did not directly kill the firstborn. He sent the destroyer to do so. Now, let's think about something. If we hadn't known that killing the Egyptian kids was a part of God's plan to punish Egypt and redeem Israel, 
We might have assumed that this action could be performed only by a wicked being. If we hadn't known that God was behind it all, we might have thought that Satan was responsible. After all, couldn't the destroyer be another name for Satan like the evil one in the New Testament? Since Exodus 12, 23 says that God would prevent the destroyer from entering the Israelite houses to strike them down, we might have interpreted this to mean that God would rescue his people from the prince of darkness. Actually, some ancient Jews read the text in this way, sort of. We have an ancient Jewish text from about 150 years before Jesus was born. This is called uh, the Book of Jubilees. And it tells the same story in terms of, quote, the forces of Mastema. And Mastema is the chief bad guy in the Book of Jubilees. He's you know, the devil, if you want to think of it in that, those terms. Uh, so the forces of Mastema, the bad guy, are the ones going around killing the kids. That's the Book of Jubilees, though. It's not the Bible. But that's clearly not the way Exodus presents the destroyer. The destroyer is not the prince of darkness. He is not Satan. He is not in rebellion against God. He's one of God's servants. The full context assures us that God controls the destroyer. And the destroyer is doing the task assigned to him by God. The same word, destroyer, also appears in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 16. So let's think about this passage. In the phrase, the destroying angel. Same Hebrew word, destroyer. 2 Samuel 24, this is the chapter in which David takes a census of his soldiers, which turns out to be a sin, as David quickly realizes. God's punishment for this sin is a plague that lasts three days. And the plague is carried out by an angel, also called a destroying angel or the destroying angel. That's verse 16. Also called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. That's verse 17. Note that also in Exodus 12, the death of the Egyptian firstborn is caused by a plague, Exodus 12, verse 13, apparently brought on by the destroyer. Here in, Exodus 20, in 2 Samuel 24, David can see the angel, who is apparently enormous. Uh, the parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 16 and he has a sword in his hand. God's command to the angel to put his sword in his sheath, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 27, corresponds to the end of the plague, 2 Samuel 24, verse 25. In a somewhat similar story, 2 Kings 19.35 reports that the angel of Yahweh killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers thus rescuing Judah from this invading army. But the word destroyer does not appear in that story. Similar story, but the same word doesn't appear. Now let's think about some spirits that are called evil, but they're spirits from God. Here we can mention a few texts. Most well-known probably is the evil spirit sent from God 
that afflicts King Saul, which I've already mentioned. That's 1 Samuel 16 and chapter 18 and chapter 19. Again, maybe we shouldn't translate the term as evil spirit, but something like unpleasant spirit. There's a scholar named Esther Hamori who says that we should translate it harmful spirit. That's pretty good. Another scholar, Ryan Stokes, says that this spirit is called ra'ah, that's the Hebrew word ra'ah, does not constitute a moral assessment of the spirit, but specifies that the spirit is one that inflicts harm. Okay, so a harmful spirit. God also sends an evil spirit or an unpleasant spirit or a harmful spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, that's Judges 9 verse 23, in order to bring about the downfall of Abimelech, who had killed his 70 half-brothers uh, already in Judges 9. And then there is the spirit of falsehood, who, according to Micaiah, volunteers to deceive Ahab in order to bring about his death. This is 1 Kings 22. To punish Ahab for all his wickedness, God inspires Ahab's prophets with a deceitful spirit, a spirit of falsehood, so that these prophets tell the king what he wants to hear, that victory in the upcoming battle is assured. This is all according to the prophet Micaiah's report of a vision. Now, one may wonder how effective such deception is when the messenger explains the deception. And we may wonder, or at least I wonder, how seriously we're supposed to take Micaiah's report of a vision. Could he just be making up a story, a, a parable of sorts? in order to get Ahab to see that he's being tricked by his prophets who have no secure message from any god. Other texts that should be considered include at least 2 Kings 19 verse 7 and Isaiah 19 verses 13 and 14. In that 2 Kings passage, God sends a spirit of falsehood, though the word falsehood is not used, to the king of Assyria to get him to leave Judah alone. And in the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 19, God sends a spirit of confusion to Egypt. And we might mention Ezekiel 14 verse 9 where, that says that God, um, God says that he deceives false prophets. There are some New Testament passages as well. The New Testament doesn't really present a picture of God using harmful or unpleasant agents in order to destroy people. But there are New Testament passages that present God as bringing about people's downfall in a way pretty similar to what we've seen in the Old Testament. It's worth our time to notice that the idea is not limited to the Old Testament. I'll just quote a few verses here. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Romans 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Romans 11 verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That's a quote, actually, of Isaiah 29, verse 10. But it's 
in Romans 11 verse 8. Mark 4 verse 12, relying on Isaiah 6. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What do we do with these passages? I don't reckon I have the final answer to that question, but maybe we can notice some things about these passages that are helpful. Actually, I've just got one thing to say about it all. What we notice about God in these passages is an aspect of his justice. All of the passages we've examined in the Old Testament and in the New Testament concern people against whom God wants to bring judgment because they are all people who have in various ways rejected God. This is exactly how the scholar Esther Hamori describes the spirit of falsehood, and I'm going to quote her here. The purpose is judgment-related, as the one afflicted with falsehood is shown to have been in the wrong already. The result is often death to a king, usually violent, or removal of political opponents, ensuring Israel's security and preserving God's plan for the elect. End quote. Whether we're talking about Ahab or Pharaoh or the Assyrians or the people who received the strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, all of the harmful actions from God are directed against people who have already rejected God. Christian readers are usually fine with the notion that God will punish the wicked, that God must punish the wicked because he is a just God. So again, the passages that we have looked at are simply an aspect of God's justice, punishing the wicked. I think the hesitation we may have about it in these cases is just that, in the Old Testament at least, God uses an agent to accomplish his judgment, an agent who does rather unpleasant things. These passages are not too distant from those other passages that we mentioned earlier in which God uses human agents like the Assyrians to accomplish his purpose of punishment. Let's think about another example along those lines. Several passages of scripture make it clear that Nebuchadnezzar accomplished the will of God by his destruction of Judah and his exiling the Judeans to Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, Zedekiah is the last king of Judah, when he sent word to Jeremiah asking if God would rescue Judah out of Nebuchadnezzar's hand, this is Jeremiah 21, God responds in verse 5, I myself will fight against you. God was on Nebuchadnezzar's side, even calling him Nebuchadnezzar, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's Jeremiah 27, verse 6. To Zedekiah's predecessor, this is Jehoiachin, who was the second to last king of Judah. To Jehoiachin, God said, I will hand you over to those you dread who intend to take your life to Nebuchadnezzar. That's Jeremiah 22, verse 25. The same sort of thing is in Ezekiel, where God says that he is bringing Nebuchadnezzar against Tyre and against Egypt. That's Ezekiel 
chapters 26, chapter 29, 30. Nebuchadnezzar is God's agent of destruction, sort of like the destroyer of Exodus 12, 23. Habakkuk does not at all like the fact that God is planning on using the Chaldeans to punish the Judeans. And God's response was that the righteous shall live by faith. We need to distinguish these evil spirits in the Old Testament from the evil spirits in the New Testament. The New Testament evil spirits are also called demons, and they do afflict people who haven't necessarily rejected God, such as the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Mark 7, 25, and a young boy mentioned at Mark 9, verse 17. These demons in the New Testament are not servants of God, but in conflict with God. We'll talk about them later. But the spiritual beings that we've been talking about today are God's servants. They are sent on missions by God for the purpose of harming people in some way, just as Nebuchadnezzar was sent by God to harm people, people who needed punishment for their wickedness. And when God's spiritual servants are sent on missions of harm toward people, they can even be described with a Hebrew word that we have not yet met in our study. The word is Satan. In fact, the angel of the Lord is at times described as Satan. Of course, you know that word better as Satan. But let's save those passages for next time. The main point for today is that God has a variety of spiritual servants at his disposal. While we most like to think about those servants whose job it is to take care of us, God's children, Scripture also makes it clear that some of God's spiritual servants have a different job, to bring harm to people. These servants are under God's control, accomplishing his purposes and fulfilling his justice.